Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. It's sort of everywhere. You know, what we really have to do, actually, is relax or drop this idea of present, which, you know, because of the sort of nanosecond timing of everything, and because human beings for, for forever have confused time with the measurement of time, it's becoming very, very hard to do. So I feel like part of my job also is to keep the future open. And I think that, you know, art is a place where we allow, in the main, that kind of futureness quality to still be there but we you know you can also find it in coffee cups and my job is to sort of hold that possibility open for people so that we can um imagine and then you know create a different world for us i think it's perfectly possible because you know there's always a funny gap between how things are and how they appear um and this kind of means you know and again if you've got five hours i can prove it to you that you know new stuff can happen and things can be different the most thought-provoking thing in our thought-provoking time is that we are still not thinking. The straight-up words of German philosopher and writer Martin Heidegger. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Is there a better way to talk about climate change? Can we stop global warming? And what can we do about it? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with English philosopher, writer and teacher Dr Timothy Morton, whose latest book, Humankind, Solidarity with Non-Human People, has just been published by Verso Books, where Timothy argues... We live in a world in which the past is trying as hard as possible to eat the future as efficiently as possible. Every year the past gets better at eating the future. So what type of future are we looking at and how do we go about becoming more ecologically aware? My name's Timothy Morton. I'm a professor at Rice University in Houston and um, my line of work for the last uh, while has been writing about ecology from a sort of philosophical point of view. And I just published this book with Verso called um, Humankind. Um, the subtitle is Solidarity with Non-Human People, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it today. Really well done on the book, Tim. I have to say it's a very challenging read. Um, I learned a lot about the world and all the different uh, oh. types of objects and creatures in it. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Um, I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can play it by ear. What has Marxism got to say about the environment and what has it done for the world and for the environment? Oh, gosh. Well, um, so the point of writing the book in a way was that um, in my neck of the woods, which is sort of humanistic scholarship in the academy, um, unfortunately, one of the rudest words you can say right now is, is we, right? Like talking about human beings as if we're all sort of roughly the same sounds very like, um, because of various different factors, um, we're basically all white guys underneath. And clearly that's not true and it's also not acceptable. But it seems very important to talk about um, issues such as global warming right now, which clearly human beings did and not jellyfish. Um, and so I've been trying to find a way of saying that word we that isn't racist or, or sexist, or for that matter, because I'm an ecological philosopher, speciesist. In other words, it's not trying to draw a distinction between humans and non-humans um, that's very rigid and, and sort of ideological. Um, 
And this is where the Marx comes in, you see, because the whole point is, can you use Marxism to talk about non-human beings? Does Marxism or, or sort of related theories like sort of various different forms of communist or, or, or anarchist theory have a space for thinking about ecological issues? And my funny answer is that basically they only work if you do include non-human beings. There's a fundamental, um, what we like to call anthropocentrism, in um, most of this domain, in particular in, in Marxism. But I believe that that's sort of like a bug, not a feature. Um, and so what happens when you take the bug out, what does Marxism look like? And that was one of the points of, uh, of uh, writing this book. Why do you think it is that there's a lot of people out there that not just ignore the um, the grim realities of climate change and global warming, but also that we are in relationship with both human and non-human beings? Well, um, I have an insight, which, you know, it's always really dangerous to have them, isn't it? Because it might be completely wrong. Um, but um, my idea, one of the ideas in the book is that... Um, this thing called speciesism, this sort of rigid distinction that humans make between humans and non-humans, is actually enabled by um, racism, funnily enough, because that distance between me and, say, a polar bear is enabled by sort of repressing, subjugating philosophically and socially and everything else, all kinds of beings who are much more like me, um, and therefore, from a kind of um, sort of racist point of view, are sort of uncanny and strange and weird. And so um, the more uh, I'm able to sort of uh, combat racism, the more I'm able to actually uh, find a way to, to, to identify in a, in, a, in a way that's good with that, with that polar bear. So when I say uh, the term world uh, solidarity, what does that mean to you as, um, as a philosopher primarily? Well, you know, solidarity is a, is a, is a thing that we think that we choose and of course it sort of is right you choose to stand in solidarity with other with, with, with other people right beings that you consider to be people um but i'm a little bit emphasizing a slightly more i don't know quote unquote passive um idea of solidarity which is that it's basically sort of like the noise that the biosphere makes actually it's really default to kind of ecological coexisting. And it's really, really, therefore, super, super easy to find. I like, I like to make things really cheap so they're really easy to find and readily available. And the basic idea is that you can see this sort of aspect of solidarity in, in the experience of, of art, actually. Because when you're appreciating a work of art, you're sort of hanging out with no, for no good reason, um, as it were, with something else that obviously isn't you and probably isn't sentient, let alone alive, actually, even. And so um, there's obviously, in a way, aesthetic appreciation actually is solidarity. But presumably you could apply that type of thinking or framework to, let's say, economic systems or, um, you know, how we go about uh, managing uh, the natural world. Yes, indeed, you could. Um, The thing is that um, for about 200 years, Western philosophy in particular has had an interesting way of talking about reality. It's basically sort of saying that reality is like a kind of musical score, right? That we kind of, we meaning humans in particular, make real, you know, in some way. So there's a, there's a work, there's something out there, but it's not real until we've made something out of it. So the Marxist version of this is that 
you know, oh, sure, there are, you know, um, potatoes, but they're not real until we've, like, grown them and eaten them and perhaps turned them into a product or a, or a commodity to, to sell and exchange. Um, and so um, there's a way in which this anthropocentrism is actually hardwired into the way we do economics. And, you know, in the old days, um, what is now called ecology was actually called the economy of nature. And there's a good reason for that, because if you think about it, um, it's not just human economic relations that make things real. It's sort of beetle economic relations and shark economic relations. If you get over the idea that economics is about this funny thing called money that you carry around in your pocket and more about how we organise our enjoyment. You dedicate the book uh, to water protectors of Standing Rock and um, you touch on the issues in relation to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Can you tell me about it? Because it's a very troubling issue and um, it possibly hasn't got um, the uh, notice and support that it's needed. Oh gosh, it's deeply disturbing and there are so many of these pipes. Um, There's another pipe in West Texas that we're all starting to to protest against right now. Um, The idea being that... um, you know, it's it's become quite clear that that, that quite that, that, that trying to get more oil, especially by fracking, is incredibly bad for um, the for the biosphere. Um, and um, this Dakota Access Pipeline is a way to get oil from 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 Canada into the southern states of the USA. Um, it's obviously going to leak. It's already had all kinds of of, of leakage. The bits of the pipeline that have been um, been uh, established. And of course, it um, you know violates indigenous peoples' lands in particular, and so um, there's a way in which the sort of struggle to be you know have a more decent human life is obviously connected to the struggle to have a more decent sort of life for all other kinds of life forms as well. Do you think it's possible in um, or if it, we were lived in an ideal world, maybe? that we could all live in symmetry in nature. And by that, I mean that we could have businesses or business entities operating in sympathy with the environment in a co-equal relationship of sorts. And that we would plan, whether it's our cities um, or whatever it is, that we would factor in 